If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the February 24th, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Amanda Gary. And who is Amanda Gary? I am a singer, actress, and general bon vivant. A bon vivant. Well, yes, you're also the granddaughter of a legend in Hollywood. Who is that? That would be Eddie Cantor. And you have a famous uncle as well from I Hogan's do. Heroes. That would be Robert Clary. Well, you're just rife with Hollywood legends. <laughs> I love it. Tonight, I sit down with actor-dancer, circus acrobat Joey Arrigo for two storyteller segments. And Steve Pride explores the memoirs of a beautiful boy with author Robert Lelou and his mother. But first, the honest tea. We have quite a few stories to get through this week, the first of which is titled, The Multi-Million Dollar Christian Group Attacking LGBTQ Plus Rights. This is from TheGuardian.com by Jessica Glenza in New York from February 21st, 2020. Now, Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, designated by experts on extremism at the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group, reportedly got $55 million in donations in 2018 and has lawyers worldwide working against LGBTQ plus people. A group of about two dozen people, mostly women, stood on the steps of the Connecticut Capitol on a New England winter day just a couple of days ago with signs reading, Protect Women's Sports and hashtag Fair Play. In front stood Christiana Holcomb. Of course, her name's Christiana. <laughs> an Alliance Defending Freedom attorney representing three cisgender teen girls in a lawsuit filed this month, February 2020, demanding two transgender teen girls be barred from competing in the female high school girls' sports division. Now, girls deserve to compete on a level playing field, and the Connecticut policy now allows males to compete in the girls' category if they identify as females, Christiana Holcomb reported to The Guardian, adding no amount of hormone therapy can ever fully undo these physiological advantages. Now, the transgender community is not the only target on the ADF's radar, are they, Amanda? No, it's truly insidious. They find a way to get in through the cracks. And the thing that's the most disturbing about it is that they use a sense of logic to make it sound like they're on the right side of the law. Right. Now, the Alliance Defending Family is a conservative Christian powerhouse working internationally to remake laws governing family, sex, and marriage in a vision which, quote-unquote, keeps the doors open for the gospel. They claim to have more than 3,400 affiliated attorneys and judges worldwide. 
In the 25 years since it was founded, it has brought 10 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, including some of the most consequential cases of the last decade on contraceptive and gay rights. You know, I don't want anybody telling me, and I'm sure you feel the same, what gospel is, unless it's Mahalia Jackson. <laughs> good point. Good point. And, and not especially from one of their most important allies, or most visible allies, Jeff Sessions, who's the former attorney general appointed by Donald Trump. Ugh. Now, some of their founders, it's important to know who we're fighting with. And the founders of ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, Alan Sears, who wrote the 2003 book, The Homosexual Agenda and Exposing the Principal Threat to Religious Freedom Today. James Dobson, Christian author, psychologist, and founder of Focus on the Family. D. James Kennedy, who died in 2007, was an American pastor, evangelist, Christian broadcaster, and author. And Bill Bright, who died in 2003, was an American evangelist who founded the Campus Crusade for Christ on the campus of University of California, Los Angeles, and also produced the film Jesus in 1979. So These obviously the, a, a wide variety of minds here. Of white men. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now ADF is moving with full force to attack the LGBTQI plus community across the globe. As recently as 2020, ADF was working actively with students in the UK, United Kingdom, defending anti-abortion protests whose graphic signs concerned the University of Cardiff. And in the last decade, ADF attorneys have argued in favor of state-sanctioned sterilization for trans people at the European Court of Human Rights. In Belize, the group sided with another organization to criminalize gay sex. In India, the ADF executive director applauded a Supreme Court decision ruling gay sex illegal, which was struck down in 2018. And in Romania, ADF pushed a referendum to oppose same-sex civil unions. In Jamaica, ADF attorneys defended anti-sodomy laws. And back in the U.S., they continue their work to craft legislation and defend religious freedom laws, which often give secular public-facing businesses the right to refuse customers or perform services. I think the very use of the word freedom in their title couldn't be more misleading. Do you think they get people on board using that word? Because it's, it's actually the total opposite. It's shutting down the freedoms of people everywhere. Well, now they've done studies and polling to see what's going to move that, what's going to move the polling numbers in their favor, and targeting sports, in particular children in sports, they have found starts to move that meter in their favor. So they keep changing their tactics, and that's why I brought this story up today because we have to stay on top of this. We can't rest. We can't ignore this story at all because just because we've talked about it yesterday doesn't mean they're not doing something today because they are in Connecticut. So I would encourage everybody to go to to go back online and, and check out that story because it's uh, it's happening right now. Because right the bullying in sports and especially bullying amongst children is happening as we speak. Every minute of every day. Not a day goes by. And speaking of bullying, Amy Klobuchar may not be homophobic, but she definitely feels superior to gays. This is from LGBTQNation.com by Bill Browning from February 20th, 2020. And I quote, Every gay man has seen the condescending look of Senator Amy Klobuchar always gives Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Did you watch the debate? I did. And you know what? I have to tell you that I did not see that. I think it's just still a rabid playing field for the Democrats right now. And Pete just comes across with such self-confidence that 
that's where people are seeing that look. That's it's it's the the jealousy of being so transformative as a Democrat. I really think that's being misconstrued, honestly. Well, it, it's interesting. Well, let's. I, I love that take. I mean, we don't always have to agree with with the news that we read here, and the and this and this particular journalist's a take on it. What does Bill Browning say in the article? He says, like Buddha Judge, I grew up in Indiana. Klobuchar's body language and barely concealed sneer is one I've seen dozens of times from wealthy white liberal women who talk the talk but stumble when it's time to walk the walk. It's patronizing tolerance until it's not. She has lobbed attacks at the other candidates, but normally while looking at the camera and couched with phrases like my friend Elizabeth or my friend Bernie. Even straight man Andrew Yang, who has years less political experience than Buttigieg and dropped out of the primary before the debate, got a my friend last night. But when it's time for her to turn her fire on Buttigieg, she faced him directly with a look that rich Midwesterners normally reserve for baristas who forget to make a heart in their milk foam. <laughs> I was like, I love that. It's so beautifully written. It's from, a great line, so, no matter what. Exactly. And I think Bill, as a cisgendered gay man, I watched the same debate that you watched. I did get a little sense of that because there's, well, partly they were standing right next to each other. But she said, oh, I can't be as perfect as you, Pete. I was like, that was a little snarky. It looks a little belittling to me. And she does have a history and there are rumors. I'm not saying I haven't had them substantiated, but Bill Browning mentions this in this article, you know, that she has sort of a reputation of being, here you go. Just like how Klobuchar's selling point is that she's Midwestern nice, despite tales from former staffers about her quick temper and abuse of employees. You know, I heard that too. And I heard the same thing about Elizabeth Warren and I think it may go back to uh, something I heard a long time ago about Barbara Streisand when she was directing. And somebody would say, if it was a man asking for all those takes, they would say, oh, my God, he's so diligent. And when it's a woman, they just go, bitch. Do you think that is a part of the inherent male-centric double standard? Yes. Of responding to how women are, are when they're tough? They come across as being bitchy and not being tough. Exactly. Because we don't know what goes on in the campaigns of the guys. They could be doing the same thing, but they just don't want to hear it from a woman. These women are trying to be president of the United States. And if they occasionally lose their temper in their office, I could see it happening. Let it go. And speaking of Barbara Streisand and going back in time, I want to call this an IMRU Monday Memories moment, sort of our version of a throwback Thursday. Christian right leader, Straight people who have oral sex have adopted homosexual sex practices. This is from deadstate.org by Sky Palma from September 16th, 2018. Honey, <laughs> when I read this, I laughed so hard I thought it was something from The Onion. <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> we should throw some onions in this. Get a little flavor. Now, there's a segment of the religious right that says things so nutty, you literally have to do a double take and make sure that you're not reading something that isn't satire, like you mentioned, like in The Onion. Linda Harvey is one such person, and she's for real. As the founder of the American right-wing Christian organization, Mission America, Harvey has racked up a greatest hits list of truly bizarre commentary on social issues, mostly having to do with her bigoted perception of gay people. Writing in the far-right conspiracist outlet World Net Daily last year, Harvey argued that the rainbow has been stolen 
by the LGBTQ community. Remember, this was from September of mm-hmm. 2018. Can we trademark the rainbow, she asked. Now her in her latest op-ed, this time the far-right-wing Christian outlet barbwire.com, Harvey takes on the subject of sexually transmitted diseases, arguing that they've been driven by progressive X-rated sex ed classes. None of which I've ever heard, by the way. And if our sex ed classes did include the wide variety of sexual techniques, I would say, bravo. Let us not think that us white women have a white bread sex life, too. <laughs> exactly. Now, according to Harvey, universities and organizations like Planned Parenthood are promoting sexual pleasure for children's ages four to seven. Of course, she doesn't provide much evidence for this other than links to other op-eds written for far-right websites and science journals that she wildly takes out of context. And then there's this. This is the humdinger. And let's not forget the deadly contribution of LGBTQ advocates who demand inclusive sex ed, i.e. lessons that outline in detail how kids can engage in anal and oral sex, the sex practices of homosexuals. These lessons often encourage masturbation and pornography use. Unbelievable. And I'll bet I know where that came from. Originally, if you were a child psychologist, you want to allow your child to express themselves. And ages four to seven, they could very easily masturbate. And they want to let a parent know not to discourage them and say, no, don't do that. That's bad. That's terrible. That's where that's coming from. They're not going to bars. (laughs) Well, I certainly hope not. And this article, it does. I love this quote. You shouldn't take sex advice from a virgin. And you shouldn't learn about sex education from someone whose understanding of it is warped and ignorant. Here, here. Here, here. Speaking of warped and ignorant, Fox News host thinks it's fine to judge Pete Buttigieg for being gay, but not Donald Trump for cheating on all three of his wives. This is from pinknews.co.uk by Patrick Kelleher from February 17th, 2020. So it's okay to judge Pete for being gay, but not Donald Trump for cheating on all three wives. How do you feel about that, Amanda? It's Fox News. My God. I mean, when have they ever laid claim to anything that was rational? I mean, if you're a rich white male, you can pretty much do anything. That's very true. But speaking of doing anything and being empowered and being a woman, that leads us to our final story for this week. The new Emma leans into queer love and modern ideas of marriage from theadvocate.com by Tracy E. Gilchrist from February 20th, 2020. So what do we have here, Amanda? Well, they're saying that they're exploring new avenues of sexuality in this film. I haven't had the pleasure of seeing it yet, but I think it's great. I mean, we know that LGBTQ people have existed forever, but they haven't been showing it in films that go back centuries. Exactly. Now, it says in the article, with the exquisite cast that also includes Bill Nye as Emma's father, DeWilde and writer Eleanor Catton excavate Austin's social commentary around marriage, class, and female agency, rendering the piece fresh and new. Part of Jane Austen's brilliance is I think she satirizes human experiences so well, DeWilde tells the advocate about her love of the 19th century writer. Emma's an unusual character in a story from this time period because she has the financial independence to not to have to marry, DeWilde says. There's this thing about Jane Austen, this misinterpretation that everything is about this desire to find her true love. Emma is not actually interested in finding her true love, she adds. That's what feels modern. 
It does indeed. And why can't your first and true love be to your art? Does it have to be a man? Does it have to be a woman? It doesn't. Maybe that takes second tier for you. I thought this was very beautifully explored in Little Women as well. I think that's the honest tea. I love how you serve it. (laughs) Glass by glass, refreshing drop after drop. And that's the honest tea. Oscar Wilde's Lost Letters, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 2008, nine manuscripts and four letters written by Oscar Wilde, the self-proclaimed Lord of Language, were rediscovered by academics. All 50-plus handwritten pages were donated to the Morgan Library in New York, which planned to put them on exhibit. Among the pages is the earliest surviving letter from Wilde to his lover, Lord Alfred Douglas, whom Wilde called Bosey. The early 1890s letter is significant, since Bosey had destroyed many of the letters Wilde had written to him. The found volume belonged to Bosey's father, the ninth Marquis of Queensbury, who blew the whistle on Bosey's relationship with Wilde. In the end, Wilde was imprisoned at hard labor for two years. His crime? Loving another man. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mike Rutz. I'm Amanda Gary, and you're listening to IMRU, the world's longest-running LGBT plus radio magazine broadcasting out loud and proud since 1974. Joey Arrigo is a lead dancer in Cirque du Soleil's Volta, now performing in L.A., And recently, I sat down with him for a very special Storytellers. Within our ever-expanding LGBTQI plus community, there are many heartfelt, challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. And now, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Volta. Today in studio, we have Joey Arrigo from Canada. Joey Arrigo is an aerialist, dancer, choreographer, actor. From the greater Toronto area, currently Joey is on tour with Cirque du Soleil's Volta as the principal character of Waz. He was also part of Cirque du Soleil's Cousa as the trickster for three years. So welcome to IMRU, Joey. Thank you. Well, tell our listeners where you identify within the LGBTQ plus community. So I identify as a gay male, And I think being a part of Volta is really special. And the fact that we bring the LGBT plus community into our show, because our show is all about self-acceptance and self-love. And now more than ever, it is a message that we want to bring not just to our community, but to everybody. Well, that's a message we should all embrace, I think, every single day. Now, would you tell us a little bit about your background and the experiences that, that led you to your current role as the lead actor and dancer in Cirque du Soleil's Volta, which I had the pleasure of seeing a couple of weeks ago, seeing someone at your skill level be able to fly, literally fly. What led you to this point? As it goes for my training, I grew up first and foremost as a dancer. I trained in a variety of styles and learning how to navigate my body through dance. I learned how naturally charismatic I was. And I knew that coming into my professional career, I wanted to do something that wasn't just physical and movement based. I wanted to do something that was so much deeper. And 
I knew about Cirque right from a young age, and I was drawn to the magic and the importance that Cirque brought to a stage with a circus-type feel. And it was just so special for me, so I always had my sights set on that. Once I had joined Cirque, I joined that first show, Kuza, and I learned so much about being a character on stage and really bringing this character to life using my dancing and being this kind of central focus to hold the energy and the tone of the show. I learned so much in doing that that they brought me over to Volta to start the creation and to create this character of Waz and take him through this character development of expressing vulnerability, building himself up to finding his self-acceptance and self-love. And we used the adrenaline base of the acrobatics and the extreme sports and everything that Cirque has to offer to tell this incredible story that everybody can relate to. So in doing the creation of Waz and of the story of Volta, I had to break myself down and I had to go back into the first, at that point, 25 years of my life and think about the things that had made me vulnerable, that had made me hate myself, not express fully who I was. And, you know, it took me to these places that as a young gay boy, anybody who feels that they are outside of society's norms has had to repress themselves, not even knowing that they're doing it. It took me back to ages three, ages four, when, you know, there's certain things in my life that I was drawn to, whether it was wearing women's clothing, putting on makeup, watching certain TV shows, playing with certain toys. And because of that, having other influences in my life telling me that that was wrong or being bullied at school. And I would push that away or I would push that down and start to unconsciously hate myself for it. That is something that, you know, we didn't even know was so harmful to oneself. And it's something that I think is becoming so much more accepted and kids these days they're taught right from a young age that whoever you are is totally fine and that you are able to nurture that in the culture that we live in and I think that's really special in the way that we're going and I think that Volta does such a good job at telling that story of taking your differences and the things that break you away from society's norms those are the best things about you. What has it meant to you to perform a show that as it unfolds really is your life unfolding. It's about you freeing your spirit and literally letting it soar right in front of us. What has that meant to you personally? It's meant so much because doing these exercises of breaking myself down and allowing myself to dive into my vulnerability, it acted as therapy. I think at one point in my life, had I not done this, I would have had to talk to somebody about this because you can't go on living, holding all of these trapped emotions within you. It's not healthy. And it results in terrible things that can happen to you mentally and physically. I really think that this was a gift from some sort of higher power, Jesus, Buddha, Allah, Dolly Parton, whoever you want. Oprah. Oprah, honey, she gave me these things. It was a gift to be able to go through this, and it helped me to accept myself even more than I already had at age 25. Which is amazing to get that much in return. Not only a gift to receive it, it's a gift for us to receive it as an audience as, as well. What scares you? What frightens you? What did you have to break through in a mental, physical, and and spiritual level to reach the heights that you do in the show? Well, sometimes when we're trying to break down through our vulnerability and learn to accept ourselves truly for who we are, sometimes there are certain things within our mind that are further progressed than others. And there were things that I was able to push forward and really learn to accept myself quicker. I came out as a gay man. I said it out loud at 13 years old. A cisgendered gay man at 13. 
I had to. That's it a was, gift. It was ex- exploding out of me. I remember telling, it was actually really funny, I told my best friend over the phone um, at the time after eighth grade had finished. And I was like, Victoria, I got to tell you something. Of course, we all come out as bisexual first because, you know, it's a stepping stone. But I said, I think I'm bisexual. And she goes, Joey, me too. It was just so cool that I was able to relate to her like that. And then I was like, okay, that wasn't so scary. And that was the beginning of that journey. So people ask me in many interviews when they come to the show or they just want to learn about my journey in finding my free spirit personally. And they said, when was the moment in your life where you found your free spirit? And I said, I have found it and lost it so many times, and I am going to continue to find it and lose it until the day I die. We constantly have things that bombard us back in that make us feel insecure and then make us second guess ourselves. but it's about breaking free of those. As the second that those walls get built up, it's about com- continuing to free ourselves. You, you give yourself permission to stay on that journey. Absolutely, it's a tool as opposed to a one-time thing of just breaking through and becoming free. Walls will continue to build up, and it's just the skill of saying, nope, we're not building that wall. We're not going to do that. I'm going to continue to love myself no matter what is happening. With that in mind, how do you hope to give back and have a positive impact on the LGBTQ plus community with the work that you do? Well, continuing to allow myself to explore this character and to show different ways of vulnerability because some people, they show their vulnerability in so many different ways. So there's the people that kind of hold it inside and just get really quiet and don't really say anything about it. There's some that get angry and there's some that get a little bit aggressive with it. And there's sometimes I love to build and show the character in so many different ways that when a character is almost like being outed. Waz has blue feathers for hair. That's our metaphor for the thing that is unique and different about you that you may not love. So when anybody is touching Waz's blue hair or they're talking to him about it, I sometimes love to play it from an angle of aggression, of pushing people away and being angry about it. No, don't touch my hair. Get away from me. I know you're going to make fun of me for it. And I used to do the same thing. You know, I think a lot of us did when people would accuse me of being gay and When we weren't comfortable with it yet, of course, we'd get angry and we'd push people away. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my interview with Joey Arrigo, aerialist, dancer, choreographer, and actor, currently on tour with Cirque du Soleil's Volta as the principal character of Waz. I want to continue to tell those stories, but whenever I can see a young child that I can relate to, there was one time there was a child who had come backstage and we have some guests who sit backstage during the show and just see what we do back there. It's actually really interesting. There's a whole different show that happens along back there. It's a literal circus back there. So he was back there and he was dancing to the music and dropping into the splits and just living his most fabulous life. And instead of what we sometimes received ourselves was, oh, that kid is different. All I wanted to do was support this kid and say, yes, queen, you better get it. You better get those splits. You know, and just giving those kids as much support as possible because who knows how much fear is instilled in them already? Who knows how much self-repression they're having to do? What other external influences are telling him yes or no? The more yes that he can get at his young age, the better it's going to be for him. I think my next question fits perfectly with what you just said. Now, you recently had on the 13th of February, 2020, outside Dodger Stadium under the big top, an equality night. Tell us about that and how that came to be. Because the theme of accepting yourself and loving yourself fully is something that we have at Volta, 
we wanted to incorporate one night each city that we go to to give back to the LGBT plus community. Our equality night is just that. We have proceeds that go towards the Los Angeles Gay and Lesbian Center. We give back to them and it's a really, really great night, especially for me to have an audience full of my community to have a chance to tell this story to people who I know are going to relate to it. It's always a very special night for me. On top of the fact that we invited many, many LGBT plus celebrities and people that I look up to. I got to meet Latrice Royale from RuPaul's Drag Race. Always a really important night. For others in our show who are not a part of the LGBT plus community, they get to see how important it is. They haven't had the chance to relate to someone in that community and how tough that life can be. To our allies and potential allies. Exactly. That's the one. Everyone is a potential ally who's not a part of our community. Everybody is a potential ally. I really like that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to start using that. Now, you mentioned that you came out over the phone after eighth grade to your best friend. Yeah. What was it like within your immediate family? What was that experience like for you? Let's just say that I did not get the chance to come out rather than I was pulled out. I was caught with a boy. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I was <laughs> I was mommy's special little boy and she was basically like, Yeah, got it. Mommy knew, love you. And it was all fine. I think my dad went through a time where he had to kind of come to terms with it. He is a Roman Catholic Italian father. and um, That's a lot to deal with. Yeah, and much of my eccentric, charismatic personality comes from my father in some way, shape, or form. But I think maybe seeing the way that his son was growing up, I think he was in denial about it and had to kind of repress that himself. It took him a while to come to terms with it. My relationship with my father now has gotten so much better. Seeing me as an adult who is successful in what I'm doing and seeing me that I'm happy and creating a good impact not only on my own life but on other lives, he realizes that this isn't a detriment to anybody's life and that he's learned so much. So I'm I'm very proud of him. You know, I didn't know if I would ever have that with my father. If there's a willingness to learn and an openness to love. Anything's possible. Absolutely. Sounds like you're getting that with your father. And having seen you perform personally, I can imagine just hearing you describe how you're using the work that you do and the skill sets that you've been given that truly are a gift, but you're not holding on to it selfishly. You're really giving back selflessly. How freeing that is for those of us who are receiving it. Sometimes before we get on stage, maybe it's the middle of our city. It's the middle of an eight-week run and... Maybe we're tired, maybe we're sore, maybe we're this. Maybe our audience isn't as high as we wanted it to be that day. But we get out on stage and that all goes away because we're telling our story and we're doing what we love. And it's a really incredible feeling to come back to that and to be able to connect to that. Whether there's five people in the audience or whether there's 5,000 people in the audience, you are able to feel the vibrations of how you are telling a story and how you are connecting to somebody. I've had an audience of like a 30% full audience, so that's probably around 1,000 people give or take, but you can still feel the vibrations of that and how your story can be told. And with that in mind, you've been touring with Volta since its Montreal premiere in early 2017, minus a six-month break, typically performing eight to ten shows a week. Describe for us a performance day for you from the top of your day. On the weekends, we have two shows a day. So today we have two shows at 4.30 and 8 o'clock. We'll get to the tent three to three and a half hours before. Sometimes we'll have extra rehearsals to clean things up, thing, things that are changing within the show. So we've got some on stage rehearsals. Super important to always be 
training our body independently, not only to get a proper warm up, but also just for some injury prevention programs. Everybody has their own thing that they do that they connect to. And we're so lucky to have the training facility that we have. We have a trampoline, we've got a dance floor, we've got aerial rigging points, we've got a full gym, we've got everything that we need to sustain our body on top of two physiotherapists and a massage therapist that take care of our body. It's so great. So we utilize all that time. And it's really incredible because the the site itself is open 24 hours a day with security. So we can go in and utilize the space whenever we need to, which is super, super great. Luckily, my makeup doesn't take as long as it did when I was in Kuza. That was an extensive makeup job that took me about an hour and a half. This makeup takes me about 30 minutes, so that's good. About an hour before the show, I put my makeup on my face, I live my drag queen fantasy, I beat the mug, I put the wig on, and I get myself hyped up. My favorite thing to do is like 10 minutes before the show, I put myself in a mirror with my headphones on and I'm acting, I'm performing, I'm listening to Pussycat Dolls, Christina Aguilera, all the things that are giving me life and they get me ready to get on stage. I've woken up my face muscles to tell a story. I've woken up my body, my blood is flowing and I'm getting going. So we do our first show. The show runs an hour each act with a half hour intermission in the middle, so roughly two and a half hours. We do the first show, we eat dinner, we take a breath, and then we do that all over again for an 8 o'clock show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Volta. You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Well, Amanda, you know, it just turned out that we both saw Joey perform at Volta under the big top outside Dodger Stadium on the same day. That was amazing. I mean, I the, the performance was thrilling. It was possibly even more fun trying to find you in the stadium. Realizing that <laughs> later on that you had seen the earlier show and I saw the evening show. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but he literally flies. It's amazing. Uh, I was incredulous. <laughs> and now as promised... More Joey Arrigo. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers, and you're listening to my interview with Joey Arrigo, aerialist, dancer, choreographer, and actor, currently on tour with Cirque du Soleil's Volta as the principal character of Waz. We finish the second show, we oil up our face, we take our makeup off. Here in LA, I'm actually biking to and from work, so I get a little uh, active recovery on my way home, which is good because it just tires me out right before I get home. And something about California and the sun coming into my windows every morning. After I do my bike ride and I get home, I am tired. It's time to go to sleep. I think most of us listening to this recollection of your day were yeah. tired, I think, after the first two hours, mm -hmm. let alone at the end of your day after a second performance. Because I really was wondering, oh, they have to have a second company that does that second show. It's interesting because just of how the adrenaline rushes happen through the day and re-nourishing yourself. And we've trained ourselves to be able to sustain this. Sometimes doing the second show, you forget that you already did one that day. It just feels like a different day. Usually my second show is better than my first. Because I had already done it that day, my body already knows where to go. Talk about your experience and success with CTV, So You Think You Can Dance Canada. How did that create opportunities for you? That was like straight out of the gate for me. So I finished high school. And that was 2010. I went to my first audition for So You Think You Can Dance in November of that year. I had hesitations about it because I knew what I wanted to do was live stage performances. I knew I wanted to be a part of Cirque du Soleil. I had, I had already been in my audition process and I had already been contacting with casting and I really wanted to set my sights there. So I did So You Think You Can Dance in Canada. 
The Canadian show ran for four years, and I was on the fourth and final season. It was either I did it then or I didn't do it at all. So I said, you know what, let's do it. Let's go. My very first audition, it was a very positive experience. I made it straight through to our finals week, which here in America is their Vegas week, but I made it through to our Toronto week. It was a exciting, adrenaline-filled, stressful, but very fun experience. They pushed us through a variety of styles of dance, and I was surrounded by the best dancers in Canada, all trying to get onto this show. Some of them, years of experience. The age range of the show was 18 to 30, and I auditioned at 18. So I did feel quite young and inexperienced when it came to working as a professional. So I decided I was going to give myself as authentically as possible because that's what I knew how to do best. I didn't want to try and be anybody else. I wanted to just be myself and dance the way that I knew I needed to. So I made the show and I was there for a good chunk of time. I had some really, really great experiences. It was a very interesting process and I got to learn so much about performing on live TV. Once I got to the end of that experience, I had learned so much and I was ready to get going right away straight from there. I had booked a job with the first company that I started working with, which was the Bad Boys of Dance with Rasta Thomas. And I toured with them for about a year. Finally, when I booked my job, the rest was history. You also have some wonderful instructional videos online as well on YouTube. Yes, I work on and off with a company called Acrobatic Arts. And Acrobatic Arts does instructional acrobatic dance tutorials, bringing acrobatic skills to dancers. And it helps dancers transition their dancing with their acrobatic skills and kind of meshing the two with safety. I think the intrigue of acrobatics and the almost trick aspect of acrobatics through dancing has become so popular that unfortunately sometimes it can be done quite dangerously. So this acrobatic arts was a platform for people to learn how to do these with safety and control. There's a full syllabus that can be learned from beginner to professional levels. Basically, I went in there and did these tutorials to show my favorite skills and how to do them safely and how to transition them through dancing. How has your work with Cirque du Soleil expanded your repertoire and skill sets as a performer? As I said before, being naturally charismatic, I always loved to play characters. I always loved to bring a theatrical aspect to my dancing. It wasn't until I was given this job within Cirque to be the trickster character in Kuza, that's when I really started connecting with other characters on stage without using my voice, using my body, using my facial expressions, telling a story and connecting with other characters on stage. That is a skill that has not only allowed me to call myself an established physical actor, it has changed my dancing to bring it to a more genuine, real place that so many more people can connect with. There is a pocket full of people that can connect with the physical understanding of dance technique and the physicality of how difficult it is, but everybody can connect to emotion. Everybody can connect to vulnerability, to joy, to sadness, to anger, to, to absolute freedom. We can all connect to those things, so when I bring that aspect to my dancing, it brings it to more people. It's been a real blessing to be able to learn these things, and I am forever grateful to Cirque du Soleil to bringing these skills to me. In August of 2019, you did an interview with the Washington Blade. You remarked that you will always be a dancer, even if and when you're 95 years old and you're in a wheelchair. You painted quite a picture with that. Why do you feel this way? 
Because dance is in my blood, it's in my soul. When I hear music, I have to move. And yes, I do remember saying that, that when I'm 95 years old and I'm sitting in a wheelchair and the hips don't work, the back is sore and the this and that, when I hear music, the shoulders are gonna move, the head's gonna sway, it's gonna feel good. It's gonna feel good because that's who we are as dancers and it's who we are as characters, as performers. Whether I'm on a stage or I'm having a conversation with three people around a dinner table, I'm gonna be a performer and I'm gonna put on a show. So often within our own community, once you hit 30, especially for cisgendered gay men and others within our community that feel that we don't matter, we don't count, nobody sees us. When you described that 95-year-old shimmying it up in that wheelchair, I thought, that's sexy. That's beautiful. That's vibrant. Absolutely. And I mean, how many times in my, my young existence, in my 27 years, have I seen somebody into their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, who they are alive, and you can feel their energy. Sure, maybe their body isn't as ripped and skinny and this and that as they used to be when they were teenagers. You know, that's aging. That's what it is. We've all lived these lives. But it's an energy that we exude into our life and the choices that we make to be happy and healthy as long as we can. I've heard it said before that when you turn 30 you're gay dead i'm not here for that no because i don't support that i don't i'm going to be 28 this year which means i'm approaching 30 in the next couple years i don't see myself as becoming gay dead or any sort of dead anytime soon not to mention the fact that they always say that 30 is the new 20 and 40 is the new 30. It's 2020 now. And if you think back to the way that people treated their bodies before and what they knew was going to help them keep younger happier lives based on what we know now it's completely different. So I'm so much smarter with the way that I'm treating my body as I get older that I feel better now than I did when I was 20 or 21. It's all about choices. It's amazing that at 27 that you have this level and this depth of wisdom and insight. What do you want your legacy to be? You're an artist, you're a dancer, you're an actor, you're an aerialist. What do you want your legacy to be, Joey Arrigo? Well, this is a tricky question only because I've always been so interested in being so great at so many things. And I've always wanted to excel at so many things. And it always kind of gave me that little bit of anxiety of not being all the way incredible at one thing while being great at everything. Jack of all trades, master of none. While I do not want to subscribe to that, I want to be great at everything, but the main thing that I want to leave as my legacy is that I was a storyteller. My dancing, my acrobatic, my acting, anything that I do, I want it to leave a lasting impression. Anything that I did, I think above all of that, I want to leave a lasting impression on somebody's heart. And I think that I have a really amazing opportunity at my fingertips to do that every single day with Volta and telling the story of Waz. I believe that everyone counts, but not everyone makes a difference. And you are making a difference. So thank you for joining us today. And please do come back and tell us another chapter in your story. I would love that. Looking forward to it. You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Well, that was great, Michael Taylor Gray. Well, thanks, Amanda. Now, actually, I'm having Joey back in studio next month. He has more story to tell. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Oscar Wilde's Letter to Bosey, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Lost for 50 years, some letters and manuscripts by Oscar Wilde were rediscovered in 2008. Now housed at the Morgan Library in New York, they detail the life and writings of Wilde during the 1890s while living in England. Among the volume is the earliest surviving letter from Wilde to his beloved Lord Alfred Douglas, whom he called Bosey. Written around 1892 on stationery of the Albemarle Club, the letter speaks of their relationship. 
Wilde wrote, Dearest Bosi, I am so glad you are better. Oxford is quite uncomfortable in winter. I go to Paris next, or in the next 10 days or so. I should awfully like to go away with you somewhere where it is hot. I am terribly busy in town. Of the poem I will write tomorrow, Oscar. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mike Rutz. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you? I am, are you? I am, are you? Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. And I'm Amanda Gary. And now, Steve Pride chats up the colorful author, of the memoirs of a beautiful boy. In the Dear John letter, Daddy left for Mother and me on a Saturday afternoon in early June 1996 on the Florentine inlaid table in the front entry of our house, which we found that night upon returning from a day spent in the creme-colored light of Neiman's. Daddy wrote that he was leaving us because Mother was crazy and because she'd driven me crazy in a way that perfectly suited her own insanity. This is my story, The Memoirs of a Beautiful Boy. The events in your memoir were hilarious to read, but how were they to live? Well, not always a laugh. <laughs> um, I, I grew up in a very small rural town in East Texas, which I have believe it or not, a lot of love for the people. And I, mean, I think East Texas, in a, in a loopy kind of a way, is maybe the best place in America for a writer to be from. Not to live, but to be from, because I think that it's one of the last places to resist any sort of homogenization of language. You know, it's still sounds like East Texas. And there's a lot of humor and flair and violence just sort of sparking in the air. And I think that's great for the beginnings of an artist. It's not so great to live there. And I, it's not so great if you happen to be a big sissy, which I had the blessing or curse of being, depending on how you look at it. It was very hard at times. And it was sort of living under the threat of constant violence which um, isn't necessarily bad for art in the long run. So if you can make it to the long run. <laughs> Somebody said, in the long run, we're all dead. Now, oddly, the least painful moment in the book was your coming out. I know, it was a tough paragraph, yes. You know, there's that sort of wonderful soap opera moment where you're supposed to say, you know, I am a homosexual and gasp, you know, and um, get the smelling salts. I never had a smelling salts moment. I kept telling people, I have something to share with you. Please sit down and take their hand and say, I am a homosexual. And everyone I've ever said this to has sort of assumed that we were already working from that script, you know? And my grandmother paused, and it was this very sort of tense pause, and I thought, oh, God, how is she going to take this? I adore her. And she said, I'm sorry, I just thought we already knew that, <laughs> you know? And unfortunately, that's always been the case. My mother said the same thing. My mother said, well, of course you're gay. Women like me always have gay children. Look at Lana Turner. Look at Cher. Look at Queen Elizabeth. Robert, of all the writers I've ever interviewed, you're the first one who brought a character from the book down to the radio station. 
In this case, it's your fabulous mother, Jessica Wilson. How fair was your son's portrayal of you in the book? Oh, it, it was it was right on. All the really wild, crazy stories, unfortunately, are true. You know, the things about the wigs and the hair and the shaving of the head and the, the implant, implant you know, everything. Shooting out. Everything was <laughs> true, <laughs> unfortunately. The scary thing is, is that at the time I was doing all these crazy things, they seemed normal. And <laughs> I'm going, what was I well, thinking when I shaved were my having, head? You were having I, a hard time. <laughs> Now you you're were, being generous. You were doing the best you oh, could God. with what you had. But I absolutely thought I was doing the right thing, doing all that. Robert, what do you want the reader to take away from your story? If I do say anything new, it would be that I think that I'm one of the first gay people of my generation, you know, to sort of tell a story that isn't tortured, you know? I think that that's the new sort of thing, that people are having happy, not completely unconventional sort of middle-class lives all over the country. I think it's so interesting to look at, like, the Cheneys, who have managed to absorb their gay daughter and, and her partner and their child into this very sort of traditional Republican structure. And I think that there are those stories all over America, very sort of conventional people who just happen to be gay or lesbian. Once again, Robert Lolo and the Memoirs of a Beautiful Boy. And the reason Mother and I could talk to each other this way, so that the meanest thing we could say was still funny and affectionate, was because we shared that special bond mothers share with their gay sons, even when they're only 16 years old and don't know they're gay yet. Mother and I were best friends, a lucky thing, since besides each other, we were both utterly friendless. She had contempt for men and didn't trust women, and I was a world-ranking sissy, and we were both isolated out on Nana and Papa's ranch. So among the only things I knew for sure when I was 16 years old was that I adored my beautiful mother, and she understood me perfectly. Mother thought her job as my parent was to make sure my life ended up as different from hers as possible. And she would have wanted me to get out of East Texas under any circumstances. But because I was gay, it seemed doubly important to take me to Neiman's so I could learn to want more of everything. I think Mother considered homosexuality to be a form of aestheticism and believed that by taking me shopping, she was giving me a world where it would be easier to find my way than in the cowboy culture of daddy's people. To Mother, Neiman Marcus was gay school, which was why she was willing to fight with daddy every weekend when he wanted to take me with him to the Navasota Saturday morning live cattle auction. Daddy's concern for me had developed early. By the time I could talk, he was correcting Mother when she brushed my hair and called me her beautiful little boy. A boy isn't beautiful, Jessica, insisted my father. He's handsome. A boy might be handsome, Mother answered. But my son is gorgeous. It would be so great if you just die. Think of all the things that I could buy. I could cash that check if you just break your neck. Every day I pray for your demise. God must be my hitman for the kill. 
Make it quick and do not change your will. Don't want you to linger. I'm crossing my fingers just as long as you get deathly ill. This has been a visit with Robert Lolo and his mother Jessica Wilson. His book, The Memoirs of a Beautiful Boy, is from St. Martin's Press. This song was written by his mom as a tribute to her in-laws. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Folks die every day, oh, why can't you? It would be my one dream that came true. Oh, please hear my prayer. Get eaten by a bear. Or have a coronary. Oh, how about Harry Carey? It's you I want to bury. I'll call the mortuary. It would be so great if you just die. It would be so great if you just die. It would be so great if you just die. Well, I'm telling you, Amanda, I think they stole my title from my memoirs. (laughs) I'm looking at you, so I agree. (laughs) (laughs) There's still a few minutes left. Enough time for a last word. And tonight, that's an audio essay from Peter Dell. For my brother and me, playing catch became an escape very early in life. The dead-end road in front of our house became a bullpen one day and an end zone the next. My brother and I played catch so much because our parents fought. Graham and I sat and listened through the walls. I sided with my mom's overly emotional pleas while my brother found my dad's logic more compelling. We found that if we went outside, we didn't hear their arguments. We also liked playing catch because it provided a way to talk about intimate things without being intimate. We didn't have to look directly into each other's eyes. Tossing a ball around made us both feel like men in the most macho, stereotypical way. He tossed me a knuckleball. Are they fighting about money again, I asked. They never fight about anything else, he answered, as I tossed him the ball back. I heard him say that we may not have enough money to pay for the broken water heater. Fastball, high and to the left. Ball one, I added. Same thing happened last month, too, when the car broke down. My brother windmilled his arm to loosen it up more. Is that why Daddy had water instead of dinner the other night at Joe's Cafe? Yep. As the older brother, he always knew better than I did what was going on with my family. When I finally came out to Graham, it wasn't a coincidence that we were playing a game. A video game this time. Graham, there's something I want to tell you. He shot at my alien, missing. Yeah? he asked. I'm gay. I fired on him this time, trying to capture his enemy base. The seconds ticked down on the clock. Are you serious? My shot went wide. His turn to fire back. Yeah, that's the real reason Christine and I broke up. He carefully aimed. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I mean, 
Thanks for telling me. I really like knowing about your life. He scored a thousand points. The game paused, and we were forced to look at each other. I just wanted to tell you before you found out from someone else. I haven't told mommy and daddy yet. I wanted to talk to you first to see what you thought. I'd wait a while to tell them. There's too much going on in the house right now with both of us going off to school. This past Christmas, my brother flew in from Chicago to be with us in our Southern California home. We don't see each other often anymore because 2,000 miles separate us. He's a flight instructor now on his way to becoming an airline pilot. My brother now plays on volleyball and softball teams in his neighborhood. He enjoys learning the sport, whatever it might be, and he still plays better than most people on his team. We played catch again for the first time in years. My parents don't fight very much anymore. They seem beyond that now. This time we played catch to have fun. We talked about his wife and my boyfriend and what our plans were. He sent me deep for a fly ball. I caught it over the shoulder, something I had tried for years to master. My brother imitated the roar of a crowd as I made my victory dance in the imagined right field warning track. Even though I had been with my family for a week, I felt for the first time like I was home. Well, that's the end of our show. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate your spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and of course, a special thanks to my fabulous co-host, Miss Amanda Gary. Well, thank you so much. And you can find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us... Be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good Good night. night.